We've been celebrating the abundance we enjoy in America ever since 1621. Sarah Lohman tells us what's been served for Thanksgiving dinner over the centuries in America. Oyster soup, boiled fresh cod with egg sauce, roast goose, old-fashioned loaf cake, pound cake, black cake, white perfection cake, ribbon cake, almond layer cake. The last few years have put a dent into the gains that were being made to eradicate the causes of hunger and food shortages in the developing world. Baron Seeger from the UN's World Food Program updates us on what they're facing. I am confident that the numbers of hunger are going to decline again. I just don't know when. And we remember Tom Miller, who defines what it is to be a travel writer. You observe what goes on when nobody's looking. That's probably the best way to put it. What's going on when nobody's looking, that's travel writing. Come with us for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. His organization won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2020, shortly after Baron Seeger joined them to head the American branch of the World Food Program. He updates us today on Travel with Rick Steves on their efforts to combat global hunger during an unusually challenging time in the world. And we pay tribute to the life and work of journalist and writer Tom Miller, who spent his days chronicling life in Latin America, the U.S. Southwest, and along the Mexican border. Ever since 1621, Americans have been celebrating their gratitude for their prosperity by inviting the neighbors over for a big Thanksgiving meal. It became a national holiday back in the 19th century. Food historian Sarah Lohman joins us now for a closer look at what Thanksgiving represents in American history and what you might get to eat. Hello. Hi, Rick. So good to be with you. And have you been sort of fantasizing about big Thanksgiving gatherings and traditional meals? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. My mom, she does like the classic spread in Northeast Ohio. Sweet potatoes, green bean casserole, mashed potatoes, stuffing, turkey, a lot of brown foods. That's how that's how we like to eat in the Midwest. Brown foods. That's right. Now, now Thanksgiving really has a, a legendary beginning way back in the 1621 or so. And it was a, a celebration. You know, the, the, the romantic notion is the colonists and the Native Americans are getting along. Let's have a big dinner together and so on. But really, Thanksgiving is a, a 19th century thing uh, that we have today. Tell us about the evolution of Thanksgiving, how we look at it since the, you know, the Civil War until what we do today. Yeah, so it was a real event that happened in 1621, a harvest celebration between the colonists at Plymouth and the Wampanoag people. And it was this moment of peace and sharing resources and three days of celebration and joy. So to me, it's like, in a way, it's very bitter and sad of how all things ultimately turned out uh, in the relationships between indigenous people and the white colonists. Interestingly, though, we didn't, it didn't become an American holiday until the turn of the 19th century, and it came in this wave of nostalgia after 1776, looking back at the original colonizing of our country and with historians. Like, it was kind of a new thing in the early 19th century to study history. So the first time we actually see that event referenced as the first Thanksgiving isn't until the 1830s. And then it wasn't until Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s that it was declared a national holiday. And that's because of, honestly, a lot of letter writing by a woman named Sarah Hale, who believed that we really needed a uniting moment during the Civil War. Was this a patriotic thing more than a religious thing? Because I've always thought different cultures give thanks to whoever they worship for having the harvest. 
It's, yeah. it's kind of a harvest festival. We we call it Thanksgiving, but other countries have a, a similar festival the same time of the year, and it always coincides with the harvest. You know, the idea of a day of Thanksgiving is a very religious idea for the, the puritanical uh, pilgrims at Plymouth. Ooh, that was hard to say. Um, a day of Thanksgiving was declared when something incredible had happened that they attributed to God. So, you know, giving this the name Thanksgiving, it does have heavy religious connotations. But as the holiday, I think, has evolved over the past 150 years, I think many of those have been removed for families who are not Christian and are not religion, that it's a day of getting together with family or chosen family and really stuffing yourself on some incredible food. Because <laughs> that's what it is now. I, I know you, you think of the the very humble family gathering where people are just thankful to have their daily bread and, and they'll say a nice prayer of thanksgiving to God, regardless of their religion. Today, it's it's kind of a excuse to watch football, get together and have a big feast and get together with loved ones. Oh my gosh, but that's sort of what I love about reading accounts of Thanksgiving in the 19th century, because it was the same thing. Yeah. You know, writers talk about that, like, you're eating all day, and then people are going outside to play games, and then coming back in for huh. another slice of cake. And Thanksgivings in the 19th century were gigantic. Families were bigger, they often lived closer, and they really did all come into the matriarch and patriarch's household. So the menus from the 19th century, I, they, I mean... It's an incredible amount of food. Well, let's talk about that. If you were um, a matriarch and you had all the loved ones, many generations coming together and you all lived in the same community anyway, so this is just a great chance to all get together, what would you be serving in the in the 1800s? Okay. Well, I mean, are you ready? Because I have an actual menu that was published in an Ohio cookbook from 1877 called Buckeye Cookery. Shall oh, I do I, a, a reading I, for you? Give it to me, yeah. Okay. Thanksgiving dinner, oyster soup, Boiled fresh cod with egg sauce, roast turkey, cranberry sauce, roast goose, bread sauce or currant jelly, stuffed ham, applesauce or jelly, pork and beans, mashed potatoes and turnips, delicate cabbage, canned tomatoes and corn, baked sweet potatoes, boiled onions, salsify, macaroni and cheese, brown bread and superior biscuit, lobster salad, pressed beef, cold corn beef tongue, celery, cream slaw, watermelon, peach, pear or apple sweet pickles, bell peppers, peaches or cucumbers, chow chow, tomato ketchup, Stewed peaches or prunes, donuts, and ginger cakes. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's do dessert in a minute. But we're just at dessert. I, I, want to have de- I want to have dessert later, but I want to digest what you've just done. So think of all that food. Is that an exaggeration, or do you really no. believe that's what they served? I mean, let's just talk about the meat selection there. I mean, turkeys could be as big as they were now, but that was kind of rare. So turkeys were smaller and families were bigger. Ah. So you're going to have your turkey, yes, but you're also going to have a chicken pie, which is basically a big chicken pot pie. And it's not unusual to have a couple different types of game meat like venison. But also this menu says, you know, throw some ham in there too, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And it's all um, seasonal, obviously. It's all local, obviously. Well, did you catch the canned corn? Yeah, I heard canned. Did they have canned food back then? Absolutely, but it was pretty new and trendy. So putting that on Uh. your table was both exciting because it was new technology, but it also meant that you could have corn in the early winter, which is something we take for granted now, but would be Uh, really unusual in the 19th century. Wow. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with culinary historian Sarah Lohman. She's compiled a history of eight key ingredients in the American cuisine, and that's her book, Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Her latest book is called Endangered Eating, America's Vanishing Foods, 
And you'll see her work in the New York Times, in Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. You can learn more about Sarah's work at her website at sarahloman.com, L-O-H-M-A-N. And today, Sarah is priming us for the most unforgettable Thanksgiving feast you could ever imagine. Sarah, review with us in this 1870s um, super-duper Thanksgiving (laughs) menu. Now, let's say, okay, you went out and played touch football or whatever you did 150 years ago. Right. I I like to take a break before the uh, pumpkin pie and everything. But now, what is the dessert course? Okay, so desserts, after we have all of our meat and sides and veggies, we have donuts and ginger cakes, mince, pumpkin, and peach pies, plum and boiled Indian puddings, apple, coconut, or almond tarts, vanilla ice cream, old-fashioned loaf cake, pound cake, black cake, white perfection cake, ribbon cake, almond layer cake, citron, peach, plum, or cherry preserves, apples, oranges, figs, grapes, raisins, and nuts, and then, of course, tea and coffee. Wow. Now, was it, would it be um, a dry society, or would they have beer or wine or hard liquor? Oh, probably cider, honestly. Cider. We were big cider drinkers, certainly. By the 1870s, maybe beer. That beer is thanks to the big German immigration in the middle of the 19th century. Depends on oh, where okay. you live. And sure, there might be a little bit of whiskey for the men after dinner. You know, that was the time when people had traditional roles. The The man would be out there chopping wood, and the, the woman would spend the whole day in the kitchen, I suppose, for this. Uh, can you paint a picture of, of how that community came together and how it functioned? Sure. I mean, it really was, if we're talking agrarian society shared by equal work, um, it really wasn't until industrialization that women got placed into sort of a lesser role because men are caring for the animals and then slaughtering them, but women are doing all of the processing. So it's just kind of two different roles that would come together. Everything has been brought in. The animals have been slaughtered. So like, it's a time when you can really celebrate bounty. Sarah Lohman is helping us view America through its traditions around the big Thanksgiving meal. Sarah works with museums and other institutions around the country to create public programs focused on food. She's formerly the curator of food programming at New York City's Lower East Side Tenement Museum. Sarah offers a culinary history of America in her book, Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Her latest book, Endangered Eating, highlights local foods and rare ingredients that are in danger of being lost and how we can save them by eating them. We have links to her work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. When we think back in the 1870s, like you just read us that menu, how does that translate to today and our, our sort of our consuming habits today? In, in other words, let's say you have the honor of preparing a great Thanksgiving dinner for a great family gathering right mm-hmm. now into the 21st century. How would you see that meal? What would you serve and, and, and what would you like to see served? Well, you know, what I think is so interesting about this menu is even though it is massive, we can spot those dishes, which are still must-haves, at least for a good New England or Midwestern Thanksgiving. The turkey at the center, mashed potatoes, pumpkin pie, cranberry sauce, apple pie, it's all there. I mean, I think that we have to add green bean casserole, which is actually a 1950s creation. It was invented in 1955 by a woman named Dorcas Riley, who worked in the Campbell's Soup Test Kitchen and wanted to create a simple side dish with minimum ingredients that all housewives would have on hand, including canned green beans and cream of mushroom soup. Ah. 
But one of the most awesome things I think about Thanksgiving in the 21st century is that it's really made personal in the side dishes. You know, whether you're having lasagna or empanadas on the side, usually those dishes around the turkey speak to your own heritage. Hmm. It's interesting. When I think back on my family Thanksgivings, each person had the the side dish that the mother or, or whatever knew was really important to that person. Yeah, and she yes. Go, oh, yeah, Jan wants the cranberries, and Linda wants the stuffing, and Rick really loves black olives to put on his fingers or <laughs> whatever, you know. And it is something that we, it's near and dear to our hearts. It's an emotional thing. Yeah, a family menu is canon, right? If you change something, you, people are going to be upset. That's so true. And I my, I just want to finish off our, our discussion and thank you so much Sarah Lohman for joining us, but the big question in my mind would be your advice for the pie. Pumpkin, mm. apple, or mincemeat? Oh my gosh, why not all three? My mom makes four different desserts for an eight-person Thanksgiving. <laughs> there you go. Well, <laughs> happy Thanksgiving and thanks for joining us. Thank you. You too. Up next, the head of the World Food Program in the U.S. tells us about their work going after the causes of hunger and poverty in a world where conflict, corruption, climate change, and a pandemic have posed their own set of challenges. It's Travel with Rick Steves. While there's a growing gap between rich and poor here in the United States, nearly half the world lives on the equivalent of $5 a day, many even less. Significant strides have been made in recent years to combat global hunger and poverty. But the difficulties in the past few years and misunderstandings over what American foreign aid actually does add to the challenge. We're joined now by Baron Seeger. He heads the World Food Program USA, which provides assistance in about 120 countries from Afghanistan to Zambia. Baron, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. I'm excited to be here today to talk more about what's happening around the world. All right. Now, just so we can kind of get the context here, you're part of World Food Program USA, and that's, I understand, a part of the United Nations World Food Program. Tell us, what does the United Nations World Food Program do, and how does the United States World Food Program USA relate to that? The UN World Food Program, think about boots on the ground, 20,000 staff in 120 countries feeding up to 160 million people a year. And then the World Food Program USA, we're the U.S. affiliate. We're charged with engaging the private sector, educating our policymakers, and also making sure that our board is engaged to help drive growth in the United States. We're also here to amplify the voices of those who are served by the World Food Program. Now, when we look at the value of taxpayer money being invested in developmental aid and foreign aid, I think there's a big difference between old-fashioned aid and modern development aid. If somebody's skeptical about the wisdom of the way we spend money through the World Food Program, give me an example of what was worse, in your estimate, about old-fashioned aid. That may have been well-meaning but was actually counterproductive, and how that's better now. Well, I would say that the cost to provide a meal is 50 cents. By the way, a school meal is about 35 cents uh, for a meal. Last year, the World Food Program fed 15 million school children. So what I would say is that there's really a dual need. One is you've got to feed people that are hungry, that are on the verge of famine. That's an immediate need. But the World Food Program is doing a lot of innovation with 
taxpayer money from school feeding to using some funding to help us train smallholder farmers to provide sustainability and allowing us to invest in green energy so that communities have access not only to food but also to water. Is there a growing uh, realization that money is better funneled directly to small organizations on the ground rather than to governments in the developing world? There's no doubt about it. And we have thousands of implementing partners, by the way. So it's never just one organization that's doing it all on their own. We're convening. We're all sitting down at the table together, making sure that we're not stepping on on each other's toes to make sure that the needs of communities are being met. You know, a lot of us don't realize that when we support Lutheran hunger aid or Oxfam or Catholic hunger aid and so on, that organization is then taking that money and empowering organizations that are really already established in these difficult corners of the world. And that just makes more sense, doesn't it, to empower an organization that is with people who live there, who know the the rhythm of life and who have the respect and the trust of the people they're going to be helping. Absolutely. Most of the staff at the World Food Program are nationals of these countries. There's a level of trust that they have built. They're also helping us identify the problems and the solutions in the local communities. One thing that I'm curious about, and you can help us with this, is structural poverty between the rich and developed world and the developing world with trade policies that make it hard for poor countries to process their raw materials. They have to export it raw, and then other people make the serious money. I mean, you can sell coffee beans and make a little, or you can sell roasted coffee beans and make more. You can sell peanuts and make a little. You can sell peanut butter and make a lot more. Is it still true that a lot of trade policies are aggressive policies by the rich world to get the raw materials unprocessed so the money can be made outside of the poor world? So I would say that we're, we're, we're trying to change that formula, and this is part of my role. We're doing a lot of convening right now with large agricultural companies uh, to see how we can share the wealth, if you will, so that more importing can be done, but also so that uh, lower-income countries can have the skills that they need to grow and export their agricultural products. I think we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of movement. But one of my biggest initiatives is working with the private sector to engage them, to use their assets, and make sure that the whole world can do what we're doing here in the United States. Baron, tell me how the um, empowerment of women is now factoring into your fight to end hunger. So we're doing a lot of training of women, particularly smallholder farmers, more than 50% of the beneficiaries of the World Food Program, and giving them the skills, the machinery, the know-how to run a business, to sell their product, not only within their country domestically, but also how to take it internationally Mm -hmm. for market. So, you know, historically, women have been kept down in different traditional societies by, by the men. And people are recognizing, people in the trenches, that it's the women who will get it done. And that's enlightened new development aid. What about the importance of, of water, bringing water to people who are trying to have that dignity of, of healthy children and getting on top of things? Food and water are the two most critical elements, not only of survival, but think about irrigation. So in a lot of countries right now, we're using green energy, solar energy to pump the water. We just in uh, on a field visit and saw where 40,000 gallons a day are being pumped out of one well, not only to grow crops, but also provide water for thousands and thousands of people. Wow. It's amazing to think that the average lot in life for many women, I mean, a big percent of the women on this planet is to abandon their families every morning and walk for water. If we could just help bring water to these communities. 
it is, it's not acceptable. And then when girls and women have to walk, it also opens them up for violence, mm -hmm. uh, for trafficking. And so we're working very hard with the World Food Program and our partners to make sure that every single person has access to water. Again, not just to drink, but also we have got to irrigate the crops to make sure that they grow. And there you've got the sustainability of communities. Baron Seeger brings more than 20 years' experience in growing philanthropic organizations. Today, he's the president of the UN's World Food Program USA, and he's updating us on Travel with Rick Steves on the fight against global poverty and hunger in the middle of these especially challenging times. Baron, I think the old-fashioned aid was sending bags of rice that say USAID on them and dropping them on a harbor, on a pier somewhere, not understanding that messes up the market and demoralizes local farmers, and pretty soon the fields in that poor country are not even planted because they're just eating the wrong kind of food and the wrong kind of culture. Uh, there's even a movement now, I think, among a lot of very progressive aid agencies to think about smart ways of getting cash to farmers instead of sending food to those countries. What's your take on that? I'm a huge believer in this. When there are functioning marketplaces, the best solution is a cash-based transfer that goes to the mom, the family, typically it's $75 a month, to allow them to purchase produce, it's typically beans, rice, oils, locally. And by the way, Rick, what it also does, it provides sustainability within that community because they're buying products and produce locally. Baron, I think a lot of American taxpayers are a little bit cynical about foreign aid because they're skeptical that it, it does much good. And uh, there are these sort of basic arguments against foreign aid. I'm going to give you a chance now as the president of the World Food Program to refute these. Somebody might say, we've already spent so much money and there's still hungry people. Why don't we just spend our money somewhere else? It doesn't work. So a couple things I would say. One is we have to remember that we saw nine years of decline in hunger, but we had COVID. We have conflict. And so you did see a spike. I am confident that the numbers of hunger are going to decline again. I just don't know when. I would also say that the 120,000 individuals supporting the World Food Program USA would disagree with that statement because a lot of them are advocating their policymakers to make sure that everybody knows that hunger is a priority and everybody deserves a meal. It is a human right. It's a human right. And historically, if you look at the trajectory, the number of hungry people has gone down dramatically in the last couple of generations, while the population of the planet has doubled. There's just a, a real decline, like hugely, except for the last couple of years when it's ticked up. Another complaint is... If you feed the poor, they'll just have more babies. So unfortunately, what you see in so many different countries, because child mortality is so high, a lot of women have several children because there's unfortunately a belief that a lot of children will die. And they do, by the way. So our job is to not pass judgment on the number of children that a mother or a parent may have. Our job is to make sure that everybody has access to a meal, that children are nourished to reach their full potential. It is not up to me to decide how many children are born and how many children are not born. My job is to make sure that children have access to nutritious meals and that 15 million people, particularly children, young people, have access to school meals to allow them to reach their full potential. Another common argument against development aid with taxpayer dollars is the United States already does give a huge percent of its uh, budget to, you know, foreign aid. 
Just how much do we give and how does that relate to other wealthy countries? So, Rick, I would say if you ask the average American, they would think it's 20% of the budget, where indeed it is 1%. And so we have to keep that 1%, if not more, in play. And I would remind everybody that uh, we did avoid famine last year. It was, we have COVID, we have costs going up, we have wars happening, and we avoided famine. And while no individual should have to die of hunger, we were projecting widespread famine last year. It did not happen. The reason it did not happen was because of the U.S. government and their support for the U.N. World Food Program and other organizations like ours. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're talking with the president and CEO of the World Food Program USA, Baron Seeger. Baron's getting us up to date on the work of the World Food Program in countries he's recently visited. To learn more about the work of the World Food Program USA, you can visit wfpusa.org. So it's important for you to be out on the road and knowing what's happening in the field. It must have been exciting for you to actually get to go to these countries. I just want to kind of go through this in a report-from-the-field kind of way. What did you learn when you went to Central America? What are the exciting issues? What are the challenges? I would say when I went to Central America, I was uh, overwhelmed in a, at the World Food Program's positive response to school feeding. It was clear that school feeding was bringing communities together, that young people were going to school because they were able to get a meal. And in many cases, this was the one meal a day that a child would get. When I was in uh, Guatemala recently, the big talk among farmers was the dry corridor caused by climate change, a place that used to not be dry, used to be fertile, and now it's almost becoming like a desert. What did you learn about the dry corridor? So in the dry corridor, I learned about innovative solutions that are being used with farmers. I looked at a number of projects where green energy solar power was being used to pump water from the ground to not only provide drinkable water to communities, but very, very importantly, to make sure that the crops were being irrigated. And by the way, enough crops not only to feed the local communities, but in many cases to take those products to the market to earn an income. That is so exciting when people can get into the global economy. I know that's what farmers down there want to do. They want to stay on the land and produce and sell what they produce. What about Lebanon? You were just in Lebanon. Yeah, I was just in Lebanon. Lebanon has suffered from a series of unfortunate events. Uh, They were a big importer of uh, wheat from from Ukraine, and then they had a, a port blast. So when we complain about inflation here in the United States, mm. I think about Lebanon, 2,000% inflation. Uh, but I would also say that I've seen firsthand how farmers are stepping up with the support of the World Food Program to grow crops domestically. We're mm. also using hydroponics, which allows you to grow a plant without soil, just with moderate amounts of water. And I've saw a huge food distribution system making sure that men, women, and children and the elderly have access to nutritious food supplies. So I would say, you know, a temporary situation, I hope, in in Lebanon. They've had a tough go of it between the war between Russia and Ukraine and then with the port blast. But we're now feeding about 1.8 million people also using cash vouchers because there are functioning marketplaces. I saw them. I went with a young couple to the store uh, because the, the husband and wife didn't have jobs. It was a temporary fix, not a permanent fix, a very temporary fix to get food and agriculture at a local market. Uh, and you were in Poland, right on the Ukrainian border. 
Uh, I know the the tragedy in Ukraine has had a a real serious impact on the affordability of food in the most hungry corners of our planet. What did you learn in, in Poland? Well, I would say, Rick, three weeks after the war, we took a group of private sector philanthropists to the field, to the border, to see firsthand the need that was being created. And we went to a train station to see so many women and young people that were getting off the train. They didn't have food, and they could only take with them what was in their hands. So we weren't working in the Ukraine before the war. Now we've scaled up our efforts, feeding millions of people. But I would say that Ukraine, as we talked about before, some of the work that we do is in kind, meaning that we're providing the food directly, but also there are functioning marketplaces in Ukraine where people just need a hand up. They need a temporary cash voucher so they can buy vegetables and rice and beans at the local market. Baron, it's so interesting to me, the more people learn about this, the more they want to do something about it. I, I know I've been fortunate to be able to travel in these countries, and it makes me come home and want to make a difference. What is your advice for an American citizen to make a difference in helping out with the mission of the World Food Program? So, Rick, I would start by saying how overwhelmed I am with the generosity of people in the United States. We have so many more people who have joined this journey of ours to solve global hunger, who also believe that hunger shouldn't happen and that food is a basic right. So we're frequently asked questions about how, how can I help? And there are a lot of ways that people can help. Number one, every time I go to the field, I never come back from the field without somebody saying, can you please amplify my voice, tell my story? So when you're sitting at the dinner table tonight, enjoying food, please have a conversation about food and what it means to people and use your social media channels to use your voice to elevate the voices of others. Baron, just to close out this discussion, if you met a skeptic who maybe doesn't even care about love thy neighbor, but uh, just wants to be more secure, how can you frame this whole tax dollar expense as a practical investment issue? How, how can you make the case that in the privacy of the voting booth, you can be totally in your own interest and still see the practicality of investing in the fight against hunger south of our border. So I have been approached on a number of occasions with somebody who will say, why are we helping, quote unquote, these people? They're not part of the United States. And my feedback is who gave us the power to decide who lives and who dies, whether they're in the United States or outside the United States. I happen to believe that when a young person gets a school meal, when they, when they go to school, they have the ability of being productive human beings. And it is not within my power or anybody else's power to make the decision of who gets ahead and who does not. I just happen to believe personally, and I say this all the time, that whether you are here in the United States or whether you are halfway around the world, you are part of my family. And I have an obligation to make sure that every single person on this earth has access to a proper, nutritious meal, and they're able to reach their full potential. And most people, when I say that, agree with me. It is hard to disagree with me or anybody that hunger is not a basic human right. Baron Seeger, thank you so much for joining us, and best wishes with your important work as the CEO and president of the World Food Program USA. Rick, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <music> 
friends from Berlin tell us how a good sausage can be just the thing for a hearty snack or meal in Germany. But first, we remember a writer from Tucson in one of his last radio interviews who wrote about life in Cuba, Latin America, and the American Southwest. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Tom Miller developed a reputation for writing about life in the American Southwest and Latin America. He started out as a journalist covering the anti-war movement for the underground press back in the 1960s. Tom had collected his memoirs in a book called Where Was I? And he wanted to talk with us about his career on Travel with Rick Steves as his Parkinson's diagnosis was progressing rapidly. It would take him a few months later. Let's listen right now to our conversation with Tom as a way to honor his work and his life as a writer and observer of our world. So, Tom, you've spent a, a lifetime writing about your travels and observing the world. When you review 50 years of travel writing, is there any um, sweeping conclusion you can draw from all the work you've done and the travels you've done and, and how the world has changed? Yes. How the world has changed is emphatic. How you change has a lot to do with where you go, who you look for, who looks for you. The individuals who you meet along the way are your teachers. Now, I'm sorry to hear that you've been diagnosed with Parkinson's at age 62, and that must be a, a difficult adjustment for a person so accustomed to an active lifestyle and, and for a writer. How, how is it to be dealing with freedom in your writing, and now your freedom is being taken away from you by uh, the challenge of Parkinson's? Well, that's quite true. Parkinson's takes the travel out of travel writing. That's one of the reasons I was doing this memoir, I was At the time, I was doing some travel in Spain, and I was doing some travel in Cuba. And both of them, my body just refused to let me go on any further. So mm. I came back home, and I started to look, what have I done over the years? Instead of looking at individual pieces, I looked at them all and took it, made them go together. There's a certain continuity in these articles, in these essays, in, these, in this travel writing. There's a certain continuity that I'm able to pull together. You know, that's an interesting observation, whether people have health struggles or, or not. It's just you can get value out of your memories by reliving them and, and reviewing them and learning from them again. I've, You know, all of us travelers have been unable to travel like we like during a couple of years of the pandemic. And I found I was looking back at my journals and enjoying things that I had, had uh, forgotten to enjoy. The enjoyment comes from the looking at it from the far end. The enjoyment isn't so much at the near end where you're doing things individually. To me, travel writing is what goes on. You, you observe what goes on when nobody's looking. That's probably the best way to put it. What's going on when nobody's looking, that's travel writing. I love that. What's going on when nobody's looking. And uh, that's been a theme in your writing. When you look back on, on decades of, of travel writing, uh, is there a particular trip that you're most thankful that you took when you had a chance? Well, in general, traveling along the U.S.-Mexico border, I, I look at that as a third country, 2,000 miles long, 20 miles wide. It's a third country between the United States and Mexico. This third country is one that I've been traveling off and on since the late 1960s. That, to me, was a, was a trip that I never stopped taking. 
And that must have inspired you to look at things differently when you thought about the differences between countries, that they're, they're, they can be so striking that even the places where they come together can be a cultural zone in themselves. Absolutely. I found that traveling in Cuba, for example, there's very different personality from the southeast end of Cuba to the northwest end. And I found that traveling both of those by taking notes, by going over them, once I'm back home, I see something that I wasn't aware of at the time that it took place. You know, you've got a knack for observing, and I've, I've always been inspired by that. People who are uh, accomplished travel writers, they have a keen ability to observe. And you actually did a story about the Panama hat, tracking it from 40 cents worth of raw straw <laughs> to a, a $35 item on a store in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. A Panama hat, first of all, let's, let's get the name straight. Where do Panama hats come from? Rick, where would you say they come from? I would guess they come from Panama. Panama. You would guess, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> I bet I would be. Where do they come from? They come from Ecuador. The raw straw that the hats are made out of come from the lowlands and the coastal area of Ecuador. I went out with the, with the straw cutters. They get the straw, the raw straw. They bring it back to their village. They wash the straw, they clean it. Really, the hats go through an enormous process in, in Ecuador. And the price of the hat keeps going up. The price of the labor keeps going up. The people who went out with, with a raw straw make maybe a dollar a day, maybe $2 a day. But then the, the payment that they receive keeps going up slightly and slightly, a little more and a little more. Mm -hmm. To the very end, as they were at a hat shop in downtown San Diego, Somebody bought a hat for $40. There's any number of places and people that get involved in this whole process. But when you start out with raw straw in the lowlands of Ecuador and you end up in a fancy hat shop in San Diego, it gives you, it gives you an idea of the economy of, of, the, of the country, of the world, really. You know, it reminds me of the uh, value chain that from a coffee bean of some indigenous farmer in Guatemala to the fancy coffee shop in the United States also. A couple of pennies worth of coffee ends up to be $5 for a cup in, in San Diego. And you think about the supply chain and the value chain, and we're talking about the supply chain right now as uh, American consumers are frustrated by things. But when we travel, we can piece that together and, and it kind of injects a little bit of humanity in the whole process of, of getting that little bit of straw in South America to the, the consumer in the United States in a nice Panama hat. One of the questions you asked earlier about what my favorite trips were, I wouldn't say any trip is my favorite because they're all my favorites. However, that one probably tells a story more than any yeah. other story. It gives the, the economy, it gives art, it gives geography, you know, there's no way you can yeah. tell a story as, as deep as the Panama hat. We're remembering writer Tom Miller in an interview we recorded with him for Travel with Rick Steves a few months before he passed away in December last year. Tom had just written Where Was I? A Travel Writer's Memoir. His titles on Cuba include Trading with the Enemy and offbeat essays about the American Southwest are in his book Revenge of the Saguaro. His papers are collected at the University of Arizona Special Collections. Tom, I'm curious, as we have a lot of uh, travelers listening, and you've made a career out of travel writing, 
How do you make a living as a freelance travel writer? Do people still make a living today the way they did when you started? I'm, I'm still convinced that you can find a, new, a good story at any moment in any country, talking with any, any group of people. I know you can do that, but how do, you, how do you pay your bills with that? How do you make some money off of that? Uh, boy, I wish I knew. Yeah, because that's the, I mean, in the old days, people would send a proposal to a magazine and they'd send you out on a on a mission and you'd bring home the story and you'd earn a living. You wouldn't maybe learn a huge living, but you'd you'd live off of it. Do people still do that or is it uh, just clickbait on the internet? No, I think you're, you're right. The internet has really sabotaged the form of travel writing that I, I, I grew up on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can still get to places you can talk to editors before you start out. I know people who are trying to make a living at it, and they'll they'll do they'll do fairly well. Nobody nobody uh, nobody gets rich. It's travel writing is not a get rich quick scheme. Well, you were pretty creative in cobbling your your uh, livelihood together. I was reading about how you actually I guess you were writing the 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 travel um, content for Lands End catalog. You mentioned it was ninety eight percent sales and two percent you. Yes, that's true. The Lands End catalog asked me to do a bunch of stories that didn't really deal with the with the products that Lands End brought out. These things, these are stories that were assigned rather than mm-hmm. than stories that I was looking for. But there was a, there was a pretty wide range of stories that I looked for and that looked occasionally that looked for me. I suppose uh, people would look for you when you had a reputation and you had to be pretty creative to see what was out there. I mean, unpredictable. Even uh, somebody wanted to hire you to write a script for a 60-minute doc on uh, baseball in Cuba. Yes, that would would have been... Unfortunately, my co-writer on that up and died in the middle of the process, so we never did get it written. However, the idea of using Cuban baseball as a device for writing the history of Cuban politics still has a great appeal to me. Oh, yeah. You know, one thing I've found, it's, it's really all about people. Can we wrap up this interview with just a, a personal encounter you had with, with a person or some people and how you were able to share it in a way where people would go, wow, uh, Tom Miller created a, a sense of place and it was all about meeting that person. Well, I'll tell you, the most exciting to write about was a man I never met. He was a drunken fool who was out in the desert north of Phoenix, Arizona. He just wanted to go shoot cactus. That's what it was. There was nothing worse than shooting cactus, I always think. And he couldn't. He got a few of them. He shot some of them. They fell down. There was one cactus that just wouldn't fall down. He tried he may. He couldn't get it to fall down. So he walked up to it, picked the saguaro rib off the ground, poked at the arm of the cactus, the cactus fell on him and killed him. Simple as that. A 500-pound arm of a cactus fell on him and killed him. Whoa. That was not my favorite, my favorite man, but that was my favorite story. Now, what happened after that was the cactus itself was wobbling around and lost its ballast, and it too fell on him. I, I think of that as a double homicide. The Revenge of the Saguaro. Revenge of the Saguaro. There's, an, there's another thing for everybody to learn. As a W sound, not a G, Saguaro. Saguaro. All right. Well, Tom Miller, it's been good to talk to you, and I, I wish you all the best. And thanks for sharing your travels in your new book, which is a memoir, Where Was I? A Travel Writer's Memoir. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. We have links to the work of Tom Miller with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. On a completely different note now, it's said that there are as many as 1,500 different varieties of sausages that you can eat in Germany. Many towns have their own local specialties. Tour guides Iris Andre and Matthias Unger from Berlin join us now on Travel with Rick Steves to help us appreciate a good German sausage any time of year and any time of day. Iris, Matty, welcome. Thanks for having us. Matty, I just explained sausages in kind of sweeping terms. Uh, What is it about sausages and German people? I think we eat sausage for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, any time, every time of the day, all year long. But what is it about sausages? Is it part of your heritage? Is it just tasty? Is it easy to preserve? Or why do you have so many sausages? Iris, do you know? Um, Yeah, I think it's, first of all, because of our climate. Most of the northern parts of uh, Germany, we have a pretty cold climate. We have a lot of pigs. And it was a way of also preserving food during the time when there was not refrigeration around. Uh, Sausages, you could smoke them and hang them up in your barn, and they would keep over the winter and the the summer. Before there was refrigeration, most sausages are based on pork. Yeah, and some people, they are hung up about expiration dates nowadays. But hey, their sausages, they're smoked. It can keep them almost forever. (laughs) They used to go on boats for a long time. So the tradition has stayed, and yeah, we have a hard time living without them. Now there's a concept called Brotzeit. What is that? Traditional German people do not have really dinner in the American sense. We have very heavy lunches. And in the evening at around 6, 6.30, we would sit down and eat almost the same as we have for breakfast. Uh, So which is bread with a little bit of butter or margarine. And Mm -hmm. then you have your different kind of cold cuts, cheeses. Maybe you have some pickles with it or some cucumbers cucumbers and peppers, uh, like coup d'été that you Mm -hmm. cut up. And, and sausages. And you yes. have the sausages with it. Mati, Brotzeit, is uh, is that literally time for bread? Brotzeit? Bread time. Time, bread time. for bread. So bread. bread is a big deal in Germany. I love a German bakery. When you're thinking of the importance of sausage, it goes with bread. Talk about uh, good bread in Germany. What do you enjoy with, uh, with your sausage? If you think about Germany, you think about dark bread, right? Mm-hmm. Rye bread, really dark bread. Yeah, this dark bread really is dark. I mean, yes. it's like black bread almost. Uh, when you're thinking about uh, this uh, broadside, time for bread, it's going to have sausages. This would change from region to region. Let's talk just a bit about cities and regions that have a famous sausage. Iris, when you think about sausages, what cities or regions come to mind? Mm, the first one that <laughs> comes to my mind, which I personally do not like so much, is the ones from Munich, the Weißwürstel which are white sausages. White so- yeah, I've seen the white sausages with the sauerkraut or the pretzel in yeah. the beer halls. And these would be typically Bavarian? Yes. So they're vice versa, literally white sausages. Exactly. And uh, you have to eat them in a certain way where you have to, uh, you cannot eat the peel. Oh, you can't. And it's a little bit of etiquette, uh, you know, how you get the peel off. And uh-huh. some locals, they just... They almost suck the sausage out of the peel. So you're left with the shell there, just the skin, and you throw that away. Yes. This is good for our travelers to know. So with a white sausage in Munich, don't suffer through no. the skin. You don't it's eat a tube. the peel. It's a tube. It's like eating toothpaste. Exactly. <laughs> 
No. No, no. <laughs> I was just checking you. No, no, no. No. No, but it's, you, it's a tube. You eat what's inside of the skin. Yes. All right. Mati, uh, I know when I go to Nuremberg, there's these lovely little sausages. They're called Nuremberger, and they're really, like, really finger tiny. Like the little them, fingers. Yes, yeah. yes. You put them in a roll, like yeah. five pieces, and they're a little spicy. You have to have sweet mustard with it. Okay, Sweet now that's, a, that's yes. a sausage skill because in Germany, the mustard, the senf, is very important and you have different kinds of senf. In a grocery store, what would you see for the different kinds of mustard? You have extra hot. Extra hot? Extra hot. You have middle hot, uh-huh. yeah, medium hot, and you have the sweet one. Okay, so then in German, the three words, or the words would be sweet would be what? Süß. And uh, a little bit hot would be? Medium. Medium. And in German, what or is Mittel. Mittel. Mittel, and then the medium. hot would be called scharf. scharf. So there's scharf, there's yes. middle scharf, and there's sus for sweet. Very important to know. Yes. But getting back to Nuremberg, we have the Nuremberg sausage, three or four or five little sausages the size of your little finger yes. on a roll. Whenever you come to a Christmas market oh, there, I love my that. God, go. They're freshly done on the barbecue mm. and a roll. It's a tradition, and especially in Nuremberg. It's one reason I go to Nuremberg. And both of you are from Berlin. In Berlin, we have the currywurst. Oh, yes. Iris, tell us why the <laughs> Berliners love their currywurst. First of all, the Berliners believe that the currywurst is theirs. Uh, they invented it across the Republic in a town called Bochum. The people believe they invented it, so it's like a little war across the Republic mm. who did it really. Mm. Uh, I believe that the Berliners might be right with that because of uh, our history with the Second World War. When the British came, there was their liking for the curry. Okay, so that's the, the English have their Indian cuisine and so on, so they exactly. spice the sausage. So that they brought the idea of the curry to huh. the people in Berlin and that some clever woman thought, well, let's put it on sausages with ketchup. So, Matti, describe a currywurst for our listeners. So you go to this woman who sells a currywurst and she will ask you, with or without the skin. Mm -hmm. Then she is going to ask you uh, 50 questions about how spicy, how much ketchup, which kind of, with mayonnaise or not. So, but let me get this straight. You have a, maybe a paper plate because it's a fast food place in German style. You, you're going to yeah. take it out. You're going to take it to go. It's very cheap and quick and all the local workers are there. You ask for it without the skin. So you're going to get this sausage pulled out of its skin. In pieces. In pieces. Yes. And then different sauces to put on. Different sauces. You have to tell her... What kind of sauce? You can have hot, hot and spicy. Hot, mm -hmm. spicy. On mayonnaise, or mayonnaise and ketchup is called red and white. Red Rot and white. und weiss. Ah, so yeah. if you want to sound like a local and they say, what would you like on it? Rot, weiss. Red and white. Matti and Iris, thank you so much for giving us a better understanding of the sausage culture. Okay, you're welcome. In Deutschland. It was a Danke pleasure, Jane. thanks. Danke. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Website uploads are by Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Quirt. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our colleagues at Arizona Public Media for their help. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine a community of well-traveled friends who love sharing tips and comparing notes. That's our online community. It's called the Rick Steves Travel Forum. You can read trip reports, reviews, and share itinerary planning questions, peruse the topics, or post your own submissions. 
It's at ricksteves.com, and you're invited.